Hi, I'm Mark Davidson, a former New South Wales police sniper and detective. And I'm Lena Nguyen, a former police lawyer. The lawyer, the sniper and the New South Wales police is our story, told in the hope that others who have come up against the entrenched culture of law enforcement from within might find ways to speak more openly. And then we might all make changes to the system. Our focus is on how police responded in the aftermath of both our stories. We're passionate about justice and we're determined to add our voices to calls for change so no one else is discarded as we were. Over the past couple of episodes, we've heard Mark investigate my story. It's a funny thing, a detective interviewing a lawyer. We became friends when I decided to start this podcast and I reached out to Mark. He was suspicious of me to begin with, naturally. But we have shared something in this journey, right? We really have, Mark. And I'd like you, our audience, to understand what Mark went through because it'll help us all when we zoom out to examine the deep flaws at the heart of New South Wales Police. So now it's my turn to be the lawyer interviewing the detective. And we're going to revisit those two awful days in December 2014 at the Limp Cafe in Sydney's Martin Place, when gunman Man Monis, on bail in relation to the murder of his wife, and known to be sympathetic to the Islamic State terrorist group, took 18 people hostage and held them there in the cafe. Almost everyone knows something about the siege, and everyone has an opinion. Some of the details were all over the media at the time, but they're probably a bit hazy to most people by now. But for me, I relive them almost every single day. Mark was the lead sniper who sat for 16 long, vigilant hours waiting to take out Man Monis. But before we get to that place and time, Mark, can we start at the beginning? What drew you to work for the New South Wales Police Force? Well, as far back as I can remember, I, I wanted to be a cop. It goes back to the days of a, a little boy running around the backyard with your brothers or sisters or friends and you're playing cops and robbers or goodies and baddies and that's how far back it goes for me. Even before I think I knew my dad was a cop, I wanted to be a cop. And when you joined the police, at some stage you became a detective. Tell us about that. Yeah, everyone does their foundational training and general duties and, and that's worthy police work to do. But then I wanted to go the step further and specialise. And specialising is not for everyone, but particularly I wanted to gain knowledge on how to investigate serious and major crime. That's where I felt like I could do the most good to help people that have had horrible things happen to them in their lives. So I went ahead and did my detectives course in 1999 and moved on to work in busy detectives offices at Bankstown and Cogra and and then from there in the major crime squads at Asian Organised Crime and Middle Eastern Organised Crime. That sounds like a little boy's dream come true. (laughs) It was for me, yeah. So then you went from being a detective to working in the Tactical Operations Unit, otherwise known as the TOU. Tell us about how that happened. I was at a point in about 2004 or 2005 and a good mate of mine, we were working together in the Middle Eastern Crime Squad and, and we are both approaching a burnout because we were doing a lot at the time and some pretty high-profile sort of crooks were sort of targeting. And um, he, he flicked me over an ad from a police uh, magazine and there was an ad for the TAU selection course. 
anyway, I, I just said, well, this could be a ticket for me to reset, learn a new skill. Even, you know, you go back to the bottom rung of the ladder in terms of your credibility because you're, you're in a new f- area of specialisation. Uh, and I went ahead and started doing some training and subsequently ended up starting at the TAU in 2006. I think a lot of people would be interested in hearing more about the TAU training. Could you tell the listeners what that was like? Any cop can join the TAU from anywhere. You just have to go through a selection process and it's six or seven days of pretty gruelling physical stuff, putting you through sleep deprivation, physically arduous activities, testing you that you can be safe in a team environment with guns when you're tired and exhausted and under high stress. And so that's the first step. But then once you get through, you go into what's called your SWAT course or your Special Weapons and Tactics courses, which is a series of courses of guns and various sort of tools that you use in the trade to to deal with high-risk police work. And then you culminate in like a room combat course where you sort of bring it all together like practice raiding houses and buildings for sieges and high-risk sort of police work. In the TAU, you then became what we know as a police sniper. Yeah, so once you go through all your your basic SWAT training, then you can specialise yet again. So some guys stay just as SWAT tactical police officers. Some of them specialise in like breaching or explosive entry type stuff where you're dealing with demolition charges and things of that nature. And the other arm generally is in the sniper field. So you're doing surgical sort of application of fire over longer distances. What drew you specifically to become a police sniper? I've sort of been around firearms for most of my life from my father. He was in the SWAS, which is similar to the TAU, and he was a sniper in the SWAS. And and I suppose I just, I just felt drawn to being able to reach out and stop something bad happening to someone whether it's a, in a siege or an undercover police officer, rather than other police officers putting themselves in harm's way. And you can do that using the distance that the sniper rifles give you. It seems to me that as a police sniper, you really need a certain type of temperament, someone with a lot of patience, stealth, calmness in high-risk situations. Oh, I mean, that's the general characteristic of most tactical police. If you're deployed as a police sniper or a military sniper for that matter, you're often deployed first into the field. You're sitting out in all the elements watching for longer and then the other tactical operatives might come and do different duties to you, like enter a house or whatever it is that they're tasked to do at the time. So often you, you do need to be patient. You do need to be stealthy in most circumstances because you need to be able to crawl into your position without giving away to the people in the premises or the people that you're targeting your location. So, Mark, you're not a small man, especially compared to me. <laughs> no, and so it takes me longer to get in position because I, it's, it's like an elephant trying to hide behind a, a blade of grass. <laughs> right. So when you were in the TAU, how would you describe your relationship with police, with your colleagues and bosses? Yeah, generally my relationship with colleagues and peers and commanders was good from my perspective anyway. I always always tended to be outspoken if I saw something that needed to be challenged or questioned. And I think most guys knew that about me. But um, when, when the job was on, there was no problems. If there was someone that you didn't necessarily get along with socially, when the job was on in terms of tactical police work, then that was forgotten about. That was all secondary. 
The TAU is, is a fairly unique unit to work in. It seems to attract an alpha male type of, there's only males that work there at this point. I think there's a woman that I work with in New Zealand who's gone through the process. She's the only woman that I know who works in as, as a tactical police officer, but it seems to attract that alpha personality, competitive, big egos, maybe vanity. So you got all these strong personalities working in one environment. You've got to have thick skin. There's a lot of heckling that goes on. It's pretty relentless and, and not everyone gets along. But if you're on the job and you've got a job to do and, and tactical police work, then, then that's, that's way, way secondary, which is one thing I commend all those guys for. I was wondering, I've never been in a siege situation. Could you tell us what generally happens at a siege? Yeah, sure. When I say a siege, a siege could be someone threatening to commit suicide or threatening self-harm by themselves in a house. That's a siege. There doesn't necessarily have to be hostages, and most of the time there's not. And most of the work that the TAU does, unfortunately, is suicide intervention, which is just a single person or persons threatening self-harm with no hostages. But regardless whether there's hostages or not, there's a doctrine that's followed, basically like a checklist. One of the first things is that the siege is contained because you don't want a person that's armed with something and running around in the neighbourhood and moving around the city. So you want to contain it to one location so you can try and manage it better. Secondly, you want to start coming up with a plan of how you're going to resolve it. If things go pear-shaped right now from the moment that we arrive and start putting our kit on at the scene, if things go pear-shaped right now, who's going where and who's doing what? You want to establish that straight away. and It's called emergency immediate action orders. Once you've been there for a little bit longer, then you develop that plan into something more uh, substantial and more comprehensive, and that's a formal emergency action plan. And when I say an emergency action plan, that, that means a forced resolution. So you've got tactical police running into a building or a premises to stop whatever is happening to try and save that person's life or hostages' lives. So it's a forced resolution that's dictated by the behaviour of the person holding the siege or the offender. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And what I get from what you're saying is that the approach to resolving seizures is is very thoughtful, prepared. You minimise uncertainty as best you can and that there really is a very methodical approach that you train for. So the, these tipping points are very clear triggers that indicate that the next step in the plan is to take place. They're called emergency action triggers. Monday the 15th of December 2014. What does that date mean to you? Yeah, that's the day that the the Lint Cafe siege started in Martin Place. I wasn't working originally on that day. I was at home. I was on a day off and um, I was watching the siege on telly because obviously that started across from Channel 7 in Martin Place. Originally, I was anticipating going to work, but I thought, well, I'm not on today. I'm sure if I'm required to be on, then I'll be called in. And then within minutes of thinking that, in the middle of a breakfast bowl of cereal, I was uh, the phone rang and asking me to come to work. So how did you go from sitting in front of the TV, eating your cereal, to then sitting in the bank opposite the cafe. 
Actually, at the time, my daughter was at home and she pleaded with me not to go to work because obviously at the start there was mentions of a gunman holding hostages inside the Lynn Cafe and had a bomb. So, yeah, it was very strong feelings for me surrounding that moment. And when I'd left to go to work, she rang me on my way to work and pleaded with me to come back and not go to work. Yeah, so that was... That was... um, It fires up some strong emotions in me. I got got teary. I got teary on the phone with her. And I had to calm myself and I said, well... This, this is my job. Yeah, this is what I've trained to do. People are, people are in a bad situation. They need my help. So it wasn't... I mean, after I hung up the phone, I was fine, but when you got your daughter's voice on the phone quivering, uh, asking her to come home because she thinks you're going to die, it's powerful. So it was your strong sense of duty that called you, that made you go? Yeah, and, and, and I would say that everyone that was there that day from the, the police and the supporting agencies answered the call in exactly the same way. All those police officers and, and supporting paramedics and fire brigade were all in the same boat, in a sense. It's what we trained to do. So what was your role on the day at the Link Cafe siege? At that point, I was a sergeant and um, I knew exactly what I was intending to do when I got there and that would be to fulfil a coordinator role in the command post with the tactical commander because I was the most senior sniper at the time and had done the most training in that role. And what did you end up doing? When you, when you asked me earlier about siege doctrine, well, mostly answering that question, I mostly spoke about small sieges but with large-scale sieges, particularly when there's hostages involved, and gunmen, you need a coordinating element, not just a tactical commander coordinating what's happening in the command post, but you need a sniper coordinator coordinating what the snipers can see, what the snipers can do in order to formulate effective plans to respond to what's happening inside the premises. There was no question in my mind that that role needed to be filled as per the training and the doctrine, the siege doctrine. So when I turned up to the command post, I was told by the tactical commander's deputy, no one's going to be performing the the Sierra One is the sniper coordinator role, that no one's going to be performing that role today. We need you to get a gun and go out into the field and and try and do the Sierra One role from out in the field, which which is unheard of. It's completely unheard of. I mean, coordinating what other snipers can see and what other snipers can do and contribute to the formulation of a plan from a firing position in the field is unheard of. Because when you're in a firing position, you're busy sorting out what you can do and physically not coordinating other people in the same role. So there's too many things happening to do that. So I imagine from an operational and tactical point of view, that decision would have thrown you off completely. It did. It threw me off and I questioned it. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to have a a big argument in the middle of a siege. So I just grabbed my gun and went out and found a firing position and that was in the Westpac Bank and that's how I came to be in the Westpac Bank on an alternate angle from the um, Link Cafe siege with two other police that I'll call Officer A and Officer J. Was Monis armed? 
When I arrived there, I, I rang some of the tactical police at the scene who had looked in through the windows and confirmed that he had a sawn-off pump-action-style shotgun. There was other reports in addition to the uh, sawn-off shotgun that he had a uh, backpack on with a bomb in the backpack. So he had a shotgun with unknown amount of rounds to shoot and wearing a backpack was something that had size to it to fill out the backpack and an unknown way of initiating this bomb in the backpack if it was a real bomb. That's what we were sort of dealing with from the early stages. We had set up some firing positions at some windows on the corner of that bank. That was about 11am that morning. So Officer J and myself were mostly on the big rifles and Officer A was going to utilise his skills to blow a hole in the high-rise building glass for Officer J to shoot through if we needed to shoot. So there's a strategy that I was going to use myself, which was to load an armour-piercing round into my rifle and then press my muzzle of my rifle right up against the glass to use the gases of the explosion of the round coming out the barrel to help defeat the glass, which is far from ideal. But my way of thinking was if we get two rounds in the air, if we need to shoot Monus rather than one, then it's going to give us a greater chance of success. So we know that you wanted to take the shot at Monus. You had a plan, you had a strategy. Well, every police officer there probably wanted to end the siege if circumstances justified shooting Monus. So we weren't special in thinking in that way. But the difference is at about 7.30 or just after 7.30 that night, we had an opportunity to do that. Monus had situated himself outside the frame of the window, sitting down on the floor just adjacent to the fourth window along on the Martin Place side of the building. And because of the angle we were elevated at and we're looking across the face of the building, we could see his head. What I was looking at doing was arming myself with information that justified me and or Officer Jay shooting him at that point, which would have then triggered an emergency action. But ultimately, myself and Officer Jay would have killed Monus and then the other police that came in the entry points would have come into a, a safe environment where the gunman was already dead and the hostages would have been saved with, with no more shots being fired in a, in a perfect, ideal world. In terms of emergency action, forced resolutions. The Lint Cafe siege was resolved but it wasn't resolved by you taking a shot at Monus. You were unable to? Yeah, well, I need to go back to what we spoke about earlier, and that was that a role needed to be filled at the command post, the police forward command post, of a sniper coordinator. Because apart from coordinating where the snipers are and what the snipers can see and do, that, that sniper coordinator as a critical hand in debriefing hostages that escape or, or are released. That information or intelligence from those hostages that leave the premises are critical to the forward planning of what's going to happen next because they're carrying very contemporaneous information from inside the premises that you don't have. And that, that happened on this occasion. 
there was a young man who seized the opportunity to escape when he could with the expressed intent of delivering critical information to police to en- enable a resolution to happen. And he, he, he looked for the information I'm going to tell you now, he looked explicitly for that before he escaped with the intent of passing that on, thinking it would be critical for the police to know this. So he watched. He watched intently a, a man Monas move around, and what he observed is the backpack that man Monas carried was very light. Like if he swiveled on the spot, the backpack would lift off his back. Like there was no substance, there was no weight in it. Even though it was filled out, it was filled out with something like a shoebox or something that was light that had no mass. Bombs that do significant damage in a place like that generally have some weight to them. If he had fabricated some type of explosive device to kill everyone inside that place, it it would need to have some mass or some substance to it, and it didn't have that. So that's the first thing. The second thing that he noted is, apart from the shotgun that we've already spoken about having in one of his hands at different times waving it at, at hostages in the place, he had nothing else in his hands. He had no wires coming from the backpack, running down his arm to a, a button in his free hand. He had no initiation device that could be observed by this witness. And he he looked for these exact things that we wanted to, to know about before he escaped. And I think he escaped around 7pm. So it was a very short period of time before we had the opportunity to shoot him at 7.30. It's my belief that because there was no Sierra One coordinator in the forward command post performing the role of debriefing hostages, that information was lost or maybe not lost, but it certainly was not disseminated to the people who needed it in the field. And that was the guys on the ground that had to commit the emergency action if required and the snipers in the field. Because I can tell you right now, me personally, if I was armed with the information that he was waving a shotgun in, at hostages in one hand and he had no initiation device in another hand and we could see him at 7.30, then we would have made a special attempt to finish the siege at that point. And I'm, and I'm sure Officer A and Officer J would support me with that call. But I haven't spoken to them about that. As we know, the siege did resolve, it did end, and it ended with the tragic loss of life. Tori Johnson was executed by Monas and Katrina Dawson was killed by the fragments of police bullets. Yeah, so about 2am that morning, the 16th of December, Tori was put to his knees facing the front door away from Man Monas. And he had his hands put on top of his head like it was like he was being arrested. I made a broadcast about that happening. So it wasn't clear to me that everyone had, had heard that because of the nature of the broadcasting, it needs to be done in short pieces of information. And you need to end the transmission just in case someone else has got something critical to transmit. So you can't keep your finger depressed the whole time talking in long narratives short snippets of information which allow other people to communicate if they need to. So I was communicating changes in the premises and one of them was Tory Johnson being put onto his knees. Sometimes you'll get a response from other parties that are listening and that is just their handset is keyed once. So all you hear on, on your end is a clicking on the audio 
and that signifies that someone, you're not sure who, has heard what you've said. That doesn't always come because if you're, if you're doing lots of small transmissions, then there may be no one keying the handset. You're just assuming that people are hearing what you're saying. And certainly up to this point, I'd been making lots of transmissions on the radio and, and everyone was hearing what I was saying. So I had no reason to doubt that people were not hearing me at this point either. Like, if, if I can ask you to imagine yourself in a command post coordinating this whole operation from a tactical commander's and, and the deputy role, not only have you got people like me transmitting things, you've got people in your face trying to ask you questions, talking to you, you've got the phone ringing about hierarchy and commissioning officers asking you questions about what's happening, wanting updates. It's a very busy place to be. So it's quite plausible, and in fact, I, I actually believe that the, the broadcast was heard in the command post, but they were distracted and just didn't, they just didn't hear it or weren't listening to the radio at that point. And why is that relevant? Well... It's relevant in the sense that um, him being put to his knees could have been a trigger. The fact that the EA trigger that, that they maintain was the official EA trigger is so broad and vague, it's, it's important from that point. Well, in fact, after that, there was a shot rang out from inside the premises, muzzle flash that I saw, Tory ducked. Still no one made a decision to affect the emergency action and, and force the, the resolution of the incident after a gunshot had happened. So I don't believe if even if they did hear me broadcasting Tory being put to his knees, I don't think that would have satisfied in their minds to launch the police emergency action because when a gunshot happened after that, they still didn't launch the emergency action. So after, the, after he was on his knees for a few minutes, there was a gunshot inside the premises where I saw the muzzle flash and it caused Tory to flinch. As you'd imagine, a gunshot going off in close proximity to you might cause you to flinch. He, he flinched and, and ducked down, but he... Um, yeah, this is tough because he, he didn't turn around at all. And I remember thinking, if that was me, in the same position that Tory was in, just turn around and look for an opportunity to to rush him or if this is going to be your end, go down fighting. That, that's, that was what I was thinking at the time. But he didn't do that. <laughs> he, um, he just... He just stood back up, like on his knees, but he, he made himself erect and he just assumed the position and just kept looking out the front door. And I just remembered thinking, my God, how can you? I don't know what was going through his head, but it, I sort of believe that his soul had made a decision that this was going to be his time coming to an end on this earth. That's what I believe now. And then soon after that he was, he was killed, he was shot, and, and at the time he was shot, I saw the results of him being shot as it happened, but I couldn't, neither of us could see where Monas was, he was behind a, a section of the brick wall. So we couldn't 
we couldn't save Tory. We couldn't shoot Monas. We missed our opportunity to shoot shoot Monas. That had passed, and now we were calling for the emergency action to be affected, and that is all those police that have been waiting for all those hours outside the building to rush in and do what they could to stop Monas shooting anyone else. And that's what they did. They did a, a pretty tough job and, and pretty tough circumstances, and they all deserve to be acknowledged for it. Just want to acknowledge the profound respect and admiration that I hear from you for Tori's courageous surrender in that moment. Yeah, it was... Um, I still... I mean, that's what exhausted me uh, leading up to my PTSD going off sick was him him sitting there stoic in his last moments of his life, last seconds of his life, and then and then him just being killed like that and me not being able to stop it. When, I mean, that's the reason that they were there in a, in a sense, you know, not just to save him but to save the others. And so that's that's tough to um. That's that flashback of him dying. Uh, that flashback of him dying, repeating over and over in my head for days after days, after months after months, um, that, that absolutely exhausted me. Mark, thank you. In episode four, Mark and I discuss what happened next as mismanagement after mismanagement occurred, leading to the coronial inquest in 2016, a full 18 months after the siege. This podcast was initiated by us, Lena Nguyen and Mark Davidson. The executive producer is Gretchen Miller with sound engineering from Judy Rapley. A good place to head if you need advice on any area we've discussed is Whistleblowers Australia. Or if you've experienced sexual assault or any kind of family or domestic violence, call the National Counselling Line on 1800 737 732. That's 1800 RESPECT. Thanks for listening. See you next time.